Hey everybody, welcome uh, back to Subtitles On, the only podcast about movies. Uh, <laughs> we call it Subtitles On, Jen. I have Jen D'Angelo here with me today uh, because movies are written and therefore meant to be read. And so we do read the movies, we do watch them uh, with the subtitles on, and you really get to appreciate the language. And today we have a movie where the writer is obsessed with his own language. Yeah. Sometimes to the detriment of the art that is made. Um, and, you know, the inspiration for talking about writing writers, writing movies, which no one had really ever tried before, uh, was, of course, this collective action that the WGA is involved in, the strike. And you've been, for me, one of the voices of the strike. Wow. You post a lot of screeds, don't we? <laughs> We post a we're, lot of screens. We're doing some rants. <laughs> we're on doing Instagram. some rants. We're doing multiple slides. We're doing multiple for our, slides. <laughs> for, our, for our opinions on we're doing what's stories. happening with the strike. We're doing posts we're shared doing, to stories. We're take we're doing we're putting it on the grid. We're taking the grid <laughs> to the story. Did you see the grid? The story's asking. For me, I'm saying I did. But I'll read it again. Yeah, here we go. Um, so uh, <laughs> it's course, a volume game, you know. And that's right. <laughs> yeah, um, we're apologizing. Sometimes we're saying sorry that we keep talking about this. Yeah, but we do have to keep talking about this. <laughs> Some people are posting to you, going, "I'm unfollowing you," and you're posting, going, "That's fine." <laughs> yeah. You're reposting them, saying, "This is okay with me." Because, yeah, because like, what I'm what honestly, I'm talking about is important. Please leave, honestly, yeah. if you don't want to see you, it. If you don't want to read a rant, I don't know why you came here. Yeah, it is kind of freeing to just be like, you know what? I'm going to run my Instagram into the ground over this. Yeah, and free myself. No, it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> you know, it's it's a it's the poster's funeral. Um, so. <laughs> so uh, but I have, uh, I always like what you're writing. I agree with so much of it. So I thought what don't before you agree we with? talk about, um, hmm, what don't I agree with? You know, I would say I agree with all of it. I do. And you can tell me if you share this. I have some self-loathing as we all do and should. And I think that there is, um, some real truth. Of course, some reality to the um, idea that this is a labor action that other labor unions should take as an example of a way that you can sort of unite and use your collective power to stand up to these like corporate sort of uh, evildoers that we all deal with. And that is reality. And that unfortunately, the writers union is portrayed sometimes as like these rich sort of liberal coastal elites who are just like assholes um, going like, I want more. And that is some of it. Some <laughs> yeah. of it is that. Yeah. And so I, I think it is unfortunate that um, you're always fighting a battle on multiple fronts and that you do kind of have to cop to look, on the whole, writers are mistreated, undervalued, and that like these, you know, the people we're asking for more from are abusing and, um, you know, focused on like 
greed and profit in a way that is like fighting, like creating anything of quality. Yeah. And so that's totally true. Some writers are overcompensated yes. for what they do and are like big vocal parts of the union and the action. And that is true. And I always have this little bit of a feeling in my stomach about like when it's like, you know, this is what it's being portrayed as, but it's actually this. And it's like, well, it's actually some of both. Yeah. But overall, I fully support it. Totally. But when, but when you say like, what part, what part don't you agree with? I just go like, I have my own sort of battle to fight on some of this stuff. I totally agree. And I feel like that's <laughs> like why I did post so much about it. Yes. I've gone into hibernation a little because I'm like, it. it is so tricky, I feel like. And a lot of the messaging that I was seeing, I was like, no, 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 not this. Yeah. Uh, because like, I, you know, I have... Two of my close friends are uh, in academia. My brother-in-law is in academia. Um, they're professors. Uh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> thank you. It's insufferable. Guy who, guy who doesn't know what academia is. <laughs> <laughs> are they okay? I know. As soon as I said it twice, I was like, why am I saying that? They're college professors. <laughs> like, but It's like it's a whole little ecosystem. Um, and I also went to, uh, I've gone to this conference twice now that, it's put on by the National Academy of Sciences where they get 12 screenwriters and 12 scientists from different disciplines mm -hmm. and they just put them together for a weekend. And it's all about encouraging good depictions of science in the media. And like yeah. each scientist gives like a mini TED talk. And it's the idea is like, you know, stories can come from anywhere. And it's really interesting. And I went to that. And so I was talking to, again, some more people from academia and <laughs> they like what they were describing was so similar to what we're feeling. Yeah. And my brother is a teacher, uh, a high school teacher. So what is that? Junior academia? Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. And he just left teaching um, because he was just like, it's horrible. Like the pay is so low. Like what you're dealing with is so stressful. Like it's just not worth it. And, you know, there are millions of teachers who have left that profession for the same reason yeah. they're just like we're undervalued and the job is getting worse and worse and worse mm -hmm. and i was just like realizing like every industry is feeling the same squeeze and same shrink yeah. and so i was like we really need to focus on the universal that's what i like that's yeah. what i like about so much of what you have written that i am like these are my feelings where it's like hang on like this is this is a larger issue that's happening like all across just totally. working. Yeah. Um, and my sister is a high school teacher, but took, you know, took several years away from it yeah. to raise her children because childcare was going to be more money than she could make yeah. teaching high school. It's so crazy. Um, and my mom was a high school teacher and and bounced back and forth between that and being a registered nurse, I think partially because like teachers pay, yeah. you know, then was bad and now has gotten even worse in terms of like the difference between inflation and what you can make. And I know in our our own industry, I feel like I got in like I start I think I joined the union in 2000. Uh, 11 yeah. and that's like supposed to be when it was still good yeah 
And so I feel lucky and like fortunate that I've gotten to keep working, but have seen just anecdotally in my own experience, the way that like we've gotten squeezed. And if you're my first job, we made seven episodes of TV and I worked for like 30 plus weeks. And then now it's like you get hired on a show that's making 10 and you get like 12 weeks of work out of it sometimes or something. And, you know, while some of the numbers I think that people see publicly are like, you make this much per week. And it's like, yeah, but you might only work 12 weeks a year. Yeah. And you might <laughs> um, then not work for like two years after that. Like yeah. it's constantly. Yeah, you're. And that's for me as someone who is established, like who has been doing it. So I can only imagine like people who are just starting out how it must feel completely hopeless. Totally. And so as with all union actions, I think you've articulated this too it's like yes there are um people who uh have been you know overcompensated or like or are have been incredibly fortunate but they're on strike to service the future generations of writers and totally. that and that should be true across all the other industries too where people who are comfortable should be willing to put themselves into a place of discomfort so that moving forward Others can reap the benefit of, you know, actually standing up to um, the whether it's the AMPTP or yeah. whether it's uh, I don't know who the teachers stand up to. Yeah, the, I'm the, like the government society. Yeah, yeah like <laughs> society at large. Uh, um, no, totally. And I think it's like that's such a good way of putting it. And oh, good. <laughs> thank God. Because, um, <laughs> yeah, it's like the big lesson for me that can come out of the writer's strike is that like it's never too late <laughs> like right to just stand up and be like hold on a second like you have drained our industry and like shrunk it down to this like tiny thing where everyone not everyone but it's like the vast majority of people are like really struggling and we're telling you like this is not a sustainable business model you're making mm -hmm. your product worse like what's happening here you know, if you feel like you're you've already been squeezed down to that point and if it feels like, OK, well, it's too late to like make this at all better. Mm -hmm. It's not too late to sort of like stand up and be like, hold on, like, can we fix it from here or at least like stop losing? And if you stop losing, that's at least a win, too. So it's like, yeah, I think that's like the the main lesson from it. And the thing that's so annoying is like, yes, the entertainment industry historically is like there are very stupid expenses like people waste so much money on dumb stuff there's perks there's perks and like they're streamlining everything to be like okay yes we need to make sure that literally every single person at every single level is constantly maximizing their value at every second and if they mm -hmm. are not they're gone but then there's also just like still the same dumb stuff like at the tip top of like yeah you're you'll throw money around for literally any dumb thing mm -hmm. if you want to but you're yes. just making it that all of the workforce is suffering so that you can save money for the dumb stuff that you just want to throw money around for. Yeah, uh, it should be about people. Um, it's always been about people. It's about uh, people. Uh, speaking of people, so we're talking about the movie State in Maine. Kevin, plug this in at the top. We're here to talk about State in Maine. <laughs> the person who wrote it is uh, a wonderful man, very famous figure. <laughs> Um, as we talk about writers, it's David Mamet. Zosha's dad. It's, <laughs> it's Zosha's dad. So the movie was made by Zosha's dad. Um, 
here's a guy, a celebrity writer, of which there are not a ton. Right. Um, who kind of has their own style and brand that they're very known for, came up uh, through the theater world and then wrote some movies, then started directing the movies that they wrote um, uh, with mixed results. Um, do You picked the movie. I did. Talk about why. <laughs> so, Stain Maine, I saw it in college. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember... Like when I saw it in college, I was like, this movie's amazing. And I think I was very, uh, I went to Northwestern. So it's like, we are taught to like worship Chicago playwrights. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I feel like David Mamet did sort of like loom large. And I saw that movie and just like loved it so much. I, I truly just like, I love movies so much and I always have that anything that's about the making of a movie or like Hollywood, I'm just going to already be like, give it to me. I'm so excited. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just remember thinking State and Maine was so funny and clever. And then I, uh, during COVID, I rewatched it for the first time. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, there's some stuff you don't remember going on. Yeah. There's a lot that I was like, this, and I was just sort of like, yeah, this is a little bit, insufferable writing wise like the writing is very much there's some language stuff so he i i believe right famously like his actors are always word perfect and everyone says things exactly as written and there's no ever not only no improvising but there's no like i'd be a little more comfortable saying like isn't than ain't or something like that like you do not change anything about what he does and he's kind of like I mean he wrote a book about he's written books about directing and acting and and I I haven't read them I I haven't studied him but my possibly false understanding of his philosophies on all of this is like it's there in the writing yeah like everything's in the writing already so like just trust the writing and there are moments in like there are dialogue exchanges in the film where you're like, oh, that's so weird to yeah. have to say it that way. Um, where people have like a little tag on a sentence or something that you're like, oh, I bet they wish they could have just. There's so much stuff that is so stilted mm-hmm. that it's just like, yeah, this is not how human beings talk. Yeah. And yeah, like it's I would imagine some of the actors were like, could I please make it more conversational? <laughs> like, yes. And the yes. answer was probably, fuck no, go kill yourself. Because uh, yeah. I think he also was famous for having a bad temper. He's, yeah, I think he's not like a super pleasant guy. Well, so like about, before we get too far into the movie about him specifically, do you have like a mammoth opinion or like a thing with him? Have you like... I mean, it really was like the revisiting state in Maine as an adult really was so wild because it really is kind of my main touchstone for David Mamet. I'm trying to think what his famous play was. I'm completely blanking. Speed like what the Plow? Oh, yeah, Speed the Plow. That was a big one. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, yes. which I like watched and, and loved um, yes. uh, as a movie. I've never seen like his theater. Um, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross is the one that I was thinking of that I was yeah. like, that I feel like is incredible. And like, yeah, it's great. That is good writing and like I understand why the person who wrote that would fall in love with like the importance of language and like want people to be word perfect and like you know think that they're uh sort of untouchable as a writer 
<laughs> and then you know the second you get to that level i feel like then your work takes like a very weird turn and you get to state and maine where you're sort of like there's stuff in there that i think no is... one can give you a no exactly and then it's like that's the worst place for you to be in to just be like you see it with artists all the time where it's like you have to eat shit from like studios or actors or people who you feel like they don't know what they're talking about they're changing they're making something worse and you're it's like you're right, maybe 80% of the time as you're going through that process. Sometimes things are being made better and you don't know, it, you yeah. know, like, but then you finally go like, God, if I ever get to have it my way, it's just going to be exactly my way. And then no one is allowed to even be like, hey, this is kind of weird. Yeah. This part sucks. <laughs> and then you make shit that like has huge glaring flaws that like anyone could see yes. and you can't see it anymore. Um, But yeah, it is like, uh, and I, it's such a hard thing for me to admit as like an artist that like a lot of the stuff that I've seen people, are, you know, other artists that I worship make was made with the, you know, constriction yeah. of like input from forces who they probably really resented. And a lot of the worst stuff they made is when they were like, this is finally fully me. Yeah. Because I know that that would happen to me as well. <laughs> It's so I'm so fascinated by it. Like I am always on the lookout for like that moment when someone turns where they are just like it's like they're, like, you know, a benign joker turn of just mm -hmm. like, you know, I finally made it and like I don't have to listen to anybody anymore. And like that, you know, is so interesting. And then it, of course, affects your work, I think traditionally in like a very negative sense because it I just feel like you he, have to maintain the right level of collaboration where it's like you have to have the perfect level of confidence like you can't have too much confidence in yourself because then you won't listen to any input and you might be missing things that are very obvious to outside eyes and if you have too little confidence then you're taking in all of those voices and like not filtering it yes then you can't then you have no vision for it you yeah. can't make a decision there is no like unified kind of like voice to anything you make because you're willing to take all input i don't know if you have a process w with this stuff like and part of why i was excited to have you i i have so many friends who have really only worked in television, but you have worked in movies where I'm sure it's very different and more like State and Maine where there's so many pieces all the time. It's just like State and Maine. <laughs> <laughs> but I, um, I know that I will get a note and that like my first reaction 90% of the time is like, that's so fucking stupid. Yeah. Like you don't get what I was doing. And then I'll go like, but I guess I have to look at it now. And then often I'll be like, okay, yeah. <laughs> like, um, but I do have to go through the process. Like I have to go like, the way I'm doing it is right. And then listen and then go like, all right, well, I'll change it a little bit. I know. <laughs> um, but I think like that is, sometimes I think of it as a negative quality to like initially reject a note but i think it is sort of what you're describing at least it's my system for it to go like i have to believe that what i did there was a reason for it in yes. the first place and then i can look at it and go like even though there was a reason for it there's an issue with it yeah i know i feel like i have the same knee-jerk thing where i'm mm -hmm. just like 
<laughs> more often than not, when I get a note, I'm just like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. Like, how dare you? Uh, <laughs> okay, and, dumbass. Yeah, yeah. Let me fucking explain to you what's actually here. Yeah. Um, and I think like, you know, that's neither a good or bad thing. It's mm -hmm. like, that's just what happens. And I think it's just like taking the second thought to just be like, okay, like that's just your knee-jerk reaction. It's like a defense like, just mechanism think about this. or something. Totally, You're yeah. being told that something you did was like not as good as you thought. Yeah. It's like, doesn't feel great. Yeah. And like <laughs> something that you probably worked like so hard on and like it, they are delivering a note like that they're like, that's the thing that I think about a lot too is like that everybody that's making a movie is coming through it they're coming to it like with their own lens and they mm -hmm. have their own you know thought process that is dictated by their circumstance so it's like the boss that they have in their ear who is mm -hmm. like thinking of it from one angle like they have their own creative input like everybody is coming at it with so many so much baggage that it's just like something that they say to you that seems like a huge deal to them is not a huge deal and honestly i think like in state and maine <laughs> the thing that i love about it so much and like the reason that it sticks in my mind is like a good movie that i love so much even though there's so much of it that I'm like it's so bad and terrible and like very uh aggressively like anti-woman i would say um mm -hmm. the the whole section of being like we came to this town to shoot this movie because they have an old mill. Oh, wait, they don't have an old mill. Yeah. You have to lose the old mill from the script. And Philip Seymour Hoffman, the writer, being like, ha, ha, ha. And they're like, no, we're serious. Lose the old mill. And then you see that the movie is called The Old Mill. Yeah. And I'm just like, that is exactly what it's like, where it's just like everybody has their own that's well Fired done, actually, that you kind of just see a script. Yeah. Like, he's holding a script in his hand, and it says the old mill. Yeah, he just holds it up to write something and on then, the back. And then you're like, oh. <laughs> They're literally telling him that, like, the title of the movie doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And, like, as an afterthought later, somebody's like, and I think you need to change the title. Yeah. Like, um, so, yes, that that is definitely good. So, uh, so to, to close the mammoth thing, he is... Um, uh, someone who obviously is a brilliant writer and has done some like really cool stuff and then also ha uh, got to a point where he could do whatever he wanted and his work suffered because of it, as so often happens. But also um, he is like politically insane now. You like know like some of like what he's been up to. Oh, yeah. I, I have mean... like a quote that I found of him today that I was like, um, I can't wait that I think in some ways. Uh, oh, yeah. Here we go. Um uh, connects to some of what we see in the movie, but he made comments in support of the Florida House Bill 1557, uh, formally dubbed the um, uh, Don't Say Gay Bill by its critics. And the reason that he supports it is because the quote from him is, Teachers are abusing children mentally and using sex to do so. Teachers are inclined, particularly men, because men are predators to pedophilia. What? We'll get into more details about the movie overall, <laughs> but one of the crazy things about the movie is that Alec Baldwin's character, who is a lead actor in the film, 
the it's never explicitly spoken, but they have found this new town to film in because they were run out of the previous town because he was having sex with underage girls there. Specifically a 14 year old girl. I think they don't they say 14 at some point. They say they say, what is he like? Like, what can we get oh. for him? And then um, uh, somebody goes, 14 year old girls. And they say, like, well, so get, you know, figure out something else. And he keeps every time he's it's said to him that that's what he likes. He goes, everyone needs a hobby. So it's like he owns it. It's been uh, it was like a tabloid fodder thing. Like he's been in trouble for it before. Everyone is insulating and protecting him. So to see now or like in 2022 that David Mamet's belief is just that he's saying teachers, but he is saying men are predators and therefore inclined towards pedophilia, I guess, saying like predators want prey yeah, uh, and that young people then would be like more vulnerable prey for them. And that is like how he sees the world. And the, the seeds are planted in this movie. Something that's happening in the movie is the villain of the movie is the the villainous act he is trying to commit through a lot of it is he wants to correctly prosecute a sex offender, Alec Baldwin, for engaging in statutory rape. Yeah. That is what the bad guy is trying to do. <laughs> and the sort of heroes in the movie pay him to not pursue this. Now it's implied like this guy's so craven he can be paid off and so he actually is a villain yeah, because it was never about anything moral for him. Yeah, he it just was just about name. personal yeah. advancement. But it is also that portrayed that like it is a huge relief for our actual heroic character, Philip Seymour Hoffman, the writer, who was going to do the right thing and actually like testify like I did see that this man had this underage girl in the car with him when he like got in a drunk driving accident, <laughs> uh, which is also sort of hand waved away that he was going to hurt his own career by coming forward and saying this in a court. And then he doesn't have to. And I believe we are meant to feel great relief that he did that like, yeah. oh, thank God he didn't have to expose the fact that this man is a predator and this man will be allowed to keep making movies and operate, you know, unchecked within the Hollywood ecosystem. Yeah. It's just interesting now watching it because it's. Obviously, this was happening. Like, yeah. very explicitly, this was happening. This was something that David Mann was seeing. And he was going, I hope no one ever makes me go into court and talk about it. Because it would be really hard for me to decide what to do for my career yeah. versus the morally correct thing. If you accept that he's sort of, that the writer is something of an avatar for him. Totally. You know? um, I find yeah. it so, I I feel like that honestly that's part of what I found so interesting about revisiting it is like, I do, <laughs> this is a real tangent. Uh, Kevin, get ready to edit. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, um, <laughs> I've become a little obsessed with the Entourage rewatch podcast hosted by Doug Ellen, the creator of Entourage. Oh yes. Um, have you listened? I've seen clips of it on my TikTok yeah. and stuff. Um, um, and I'm also very sort of, I, I, I would listen to it because I rewatched all of Entourage um, a few years ago. Yeah. And it's like, 
I, so I've watched all of Entourage. Uh, I would say it's like a mix of like sort of ironically hate watching and there's some stuff in it that I'm like, it's pretty funny. <laughs> there's funny stuff. There's there's, a, funny there's stuff? an entertainment, like it's what it always was, which is it's lifestyle porn. Exactly. It's people like in cool cars being good looking in Hollywood and getting paid money to make movies. And yeah. it's like this, I like to see this. And, and there's like, hugely problematic elements. <laughs> yeah, a huge, like uh, astoundingly problematic elements. And, uh, and the other thing about Entourage too that I like is like, <laughs> again a very problematic person but like Ari Gold like that character I'm just like that's such a good character and I like seeing like the inner workings of like the agency and stuff and mm -hmm. it's like and those people do exist and so like seeing a sort of a satire of it is very interesting and and fun I think but like the Entourage Rewatch podcast the reason that I'm so obsessed with it is because when it started it was sort of under the guise of like, let's revisit Entourage with the lens of today and sort mm -hmm. of like see, uh, like re-examine it and sort of like, what did we do that we wouldn't stand by now that we don't feel good about? Yeah. And they had sort of been humbled by the fact that like the show ended kind of badly, like people really hated the last season, the movie was right. not a success. And so it was kind of like, okay, let's look back at the show and like kind of see like, you know, really examine it. And then they're a little bit humbled but then the podcast becomes successful and then they kind of immediately be, uh, are like, and you know what, Entourage was a fucking great show. And like, sure, there's some stuff we wouldn't say today, but like, fuck you if you think it's like woke problematic. Like yeah. they go right back into this like defensive mode and it's just very interesting to listen to. It's kind of like, it scratches a similar itch as watching like Real Housewives where I'm just yeah. like, I get to hear these men just behaving badly and like kind of like telling on themselves and it's really great. Anyway, they get, Doug Allen has like a real axe to grind where he's like, why do people always talk about Entourage being such a problematic show when it's like they say way worse stuff on Succession? Uh-huh. And I do think it's so interesting when you can feel that the movie is standing by the characters and not right. being like, look at these horrible people. Mm -hmm. Because it's like there's a movie, I think there is like, there could be a very interesting and like, you know, thought-provoking comedy about a writer who gets in a situation where he's like, fuck, the lead, like, I have this movie that's finally being made. It's yeah. huge for my career. The lead is a piece of shit. Yeah. And, like, I have the ability to, like, get my movie shut down and, like, get this person put away. At great personal cost. At great personal I cost. I could expose this person yes. who is, like, a, it is a predator. Yeah. Um, And, like, and, the producer yeah. is, like, trying to, like, <laughs> like, ruin my life to make sure that I don't do that and yeah. so like what do I do and I feel like there's a you know that's an interesting story and that could be like such a funny comedy that satirizes like the ills of the industry and like yeah and while also uplifting like the nice parts of the industry and like how nice it is to make a movie and you know the camaraderie that can happen and how that is sort of always uh being threatened by these like egomaniacal monsters or whatever and I'm like, there's something so interesting there, but you can just tell that David Mamet is telling it from this view of like, I don't think you're ever meant, like, I do think you're supposed to be laughing at how horrible Alec Baldwin is, but it 
it yeah. just doesn't feel like you're not supposed to be like i can't believe this guy is so bad like yeah. he's, he's portrayed as just sort of a charmer who's right like it's a, like that's what happens yeah you know i think that yes that's right like with the entourage guys like the difference is obviously in succession the writers are like this is how rotten people are yes. at like the core of them and like let's look at that Versus like, isn't it cool when people like yeah. use slurs? Yeah. Um, so there, that's very different. And I think in this, like, there's a cynicism to it. Like, there's a light, like, it's sort of saying like, it's difficult for someone who is truly moral to like work in this environment. Um, it's very challenging. Like, that's what it's saying. But it's also kind of just going like, but that's how the sausage gets made. Yeah. You know, <laughs> end of the day. You like well, I watch movies, a movie, don't you? right? Yeah. <laughs> I like movies. So it is, yeah, there's sort of like a shoulder shrugging attitude of like, some of it's kind of messed up. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> um, yeah, there's no weight to it. Uh, so yeah, I do, I did feel that too, where it's like, there could be something that was like a real commentary, but this is not meant to be a commentary. There's sort of Things that are happening. Totally. It's like the difference between 30 Rock and Studio 60. It's like, yes. it's like 30 Rock is like, this is so dumb and everything is awful. And isn't that funny? And Studio 60 is like, this is important. And we are beautiful storytellers. And it's just like, yeah, when the the POV is like, when it seeps in and you can tell that it's just like, you're telling the wrong story actually here. It's so off-putting. Yeah, I definitely... I definitely felt that um, I think, uh, you know, the the movie opens with them finding the new location. They're like in a new town. Um, they get sent flowers from the studio to be like, please keep this movie under budget. <laughs> um, uh, and then Philip Seymour Hoffman arrives. He then um, is told that he has to rewrite it. He has to write the old mill out of it. Uh, he's trying to figure out how to do it and he immediately runs into and starts having these interactions with David Mamet's wife at the time. Yeah, uh, which that leaps off the screen. It's like this woman <laughs> was cast for the wrong reasons, I think. I mean, I guess I shouldn't say that. Look, there's, I think... She was a working actress. Yeah. It is, you know, a large part of her filmography is in the uh, in his films. And there's something weird going on with this character and performance. I, I, I don't blame it entirely on her because like so they're in Vermont. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Uh, right outside Philadelphia. OK, so I grew up in New England and. There's this weird, like, there are small towns in, like, Maine and Vermont. They've come from New Hampshire to Vermont. They got run out of New Hampshire because of Alec Baldwin's uh, behavior. So she has all these folksy expressions that are, it's, like, sort of Midwestern feeling. Yeah. They're, like, old people in Maine who have, like, a weird, like, almost Boston accent who are, like, are like the old guys in the diner that are these sort there's these sort of, like, Statler and Waldorf characters who are always, like, you know, inspiring dialogue for the writer where they're, like, only time you get a second <laughs> chance is a second chance to make the same mistake or something. Like, yeah. they're having That's these little one exchanges. 
you can feel David Mamet's POV in kind of a gross way, too, because there is a little bit of like, can you believe that these two idiots talk smart? And it's like, oh, yeah, there is like a a little bit of a disdain for people who are from like a, a small town. Yeah. And a to me, a fundamental misunderstanding of like what Vermont is yeah. like, like it doesn't it doesn't feel accurate to the location that is almost the entire point of the movie is like Hollywood invades small town Vermont, which I'm like, it's again, like there are places I've been in Maine where people like have an accent and stuff. This is, there's not an accent, but there's not, not an accent. Right. There's like a weird folksiness that feels sort of like Fargo or something. Yeah. But doesn't, it doesn't have any reality for me. No. Um, the character is completely insane. And she has like almost like a British accent. I feel like she's got like a very like. She's doing something different than the other. Like the yeah. old guys in the small town have their own thing. And it's like, OK, so you can. This isn't Vermont, in my opinion, but we'll go with it. But then other people are doing something different. Like it's like she is at the top of the movie engaged to Clark Gregg, who is the villain who's who who um that bastard who wants <laughs> the drunk driving pedophile to get in trouble. Um so she she's engaged to him. We get the information that they're engaged in a scene where they appear to have never spoken with one another. Ever. And I get that we're going to have um, these two people break up. And so you don't want to like really like you don't want to fucking ship them. Um, <laughs> but it's also like they do not seem to have ever spoken before. Yeah. Right. Like I was like, what is their relationship? And then you are like, oh, they're engaged. Like, yeah, they're engaged. Like, is she like his new employee yeah, or something because like, this- he's talking to her going like this is what people don't like about you like you have to like <laughs> it's like so weird it's very strange it's also like their breakup happens in like two lines well this is what i was gonna say is like her her character is so so fucking crazy and like she like meets philip seymour hoffman they have like an okay bantery exchange and then like a scene later, her fiance sits down with her and she goes like, it's over between us. Yeah. I met someone else. I don't want to date you anymore. Hasn't talked to uh, the writer about it. Yeah. Um, hasn't like there's no warning. And again, this guy who, you know, is like a, a dickhead in the movie and you like are meant to dislike him. But it's like to look at things from his perspective, it's like he's trying to prosecute a crime and he is. <laughs> And he has been with no conversation whatsoever. Had his fiance be like, fuck you. Like, you're dead to me. I am going to start a relationship with this person who is in town for 45 days. Like, he's here yeah. for a film shoot. And then it will, you know, maybe it'll continue on. We're led to believe that it does. But it's like. Gee, like I'd be upset as well. Like I yeah. also would be like, I hate that this movie came to town. Yeah, like, I would really also, want it to go away. His original sin, like uh, Clark Gregg's original sin, is like he is immediately like, we got to make sure that they're paying us well. He's like, they're yes. gonna try to undercut everything. Like 
and they have so much money. Like he's basically trying to like milk the studio for as much money as possible. And it's like, yes, he's like a slimy kind of like heel who's like out for his own game. But it's like he is also in some ways like looking out for the town. Well, and this is yes. He, <laughs> yes. And this is a real thing, right? Like I've been when I uh, Dom and I made a pilot together and we got this house. And as soon as there were trucks at the house, like all of the neighbors started oh, to sort yeah. of swarm around. It was a house they used for filming a lot. And they just kind of appear and they're just walking up with their hands out being like, we have to make a noise complaint or like we can't park because of this truck here. And they're just kind of indicating we are aware that we can make complaints that will like slow down and be a nuisance for production. And we are aware that a way that you cause that to not happen is you pay us. And there's like a little bit of a slush fund on a production to like pay people who live near the location that you use. Yeah. Um, so that's something I liked about the movie there. I, I do look for as we do this, like observations that you're like, oh, I haven't necessarily seen that portrayed the way in which like um, everyone who kind of like touches a Hollywood production who is like not related to it at all somehow is like, can some crumbs fall off of this for me? Yeah. Can I get some money? Uh, and they do it, you know, like people I know on that they got paid. We've had. um People just knock on our door and be like, we're looking for a location like this. The apartment that I first lived in with Grace was like used all the time for filming. They filmed like New Girl there. There were like movies there. And so it was always like you could, you know, get put up in a hotel for a week and they'll like pay you whatever amount of money per week to like use your location. Um then the other side of that, of course, which I'm sure you've seen, is like when people film in where you live, they treat it like fucking shit. Yeah, it's they horrible. Destroy it's it. like, it's not <laughs> worth it. It's so bad. It's not. You'll never, you, your home will never feel the same again. Yeah. Um, if they're actually inside of it. So like, yeah, he is one of the people who is trying to get money from a production. And when you work on the production, you think that person is evil. Yeah. Because you're like, fuck. Yeah. Money out of this. And it's like, it's the classic thing of just like, yeah, like the production's budget is not the studio's budget. Yeah. And so it's like, it causes like massive headaches for the people that are like on the ground. But yeah, like the Clark Greggs of the world are like, but you're like this studio. You have yeah, nothing money. but yeah, money. Movies like, cost millions of yeah. dollars. Like you can't give us like five hundred dollars. Yeah. It's like it's kind of it's not. It's I different. know that. I know that's how it seems. Yeah. But like, but it's like again, like their like the movie from their perspective is so much more interesting. That it's just like there's a woman that works at this bookstore. She's like obsessed with this playwright. Mm-hmm. He happens to come into her town because he's shooting a movie. She has one conversation with him and then it's like, I'm blowing up my whole life. <laughs> like, Well, like- here's the stuff. Yeah. So let's talk about like the way the way writers are portrayed in film, specifically in a film made by someone who is a celebrity writer. And so he like. I think in an act of humility has made the Philip Seymour Hoffman character less successful than him. Yeah. But he is very talented and good and cool. And uh, the most unrealistic thing to me is like this writer meets someone in a town who he likes and she immediately is aware of his very obscure work that he's proud of. (laughs) 
That doesn't happen. <laughs> people don't. People do not know what you've worked on. So that immediately is fake. And also, if they do know, I feel like that's honestly like a big red flag. You go, <laughs> like, okay, well, what's going on? Yeah. Like, this is creepy. Why then. do you? Like, yeah. Well, then, that, yeah. I wanted you to know, but now I don't want to talk to you yeah. because you know what it is. <laughs> so that is going on. Also, like, he's like, you know, he's sort of... um insecure this guy but he everybody wants to fuck this guy like it's like the star the hollywood starlet like immediately is like i want to come into your room and get naked and have sex with you then the like you know pretty small town woman who he's met also is like knocking on his door like i just broke up with my fiance so yeah. i could be with you so it is very um Always funny to me to watch these and see the brain poisoning that the famous writer has received where he's like, this is kind of what being a writer is like. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was that was interesting. I know you also said that this um, you believe that this movie hates women. Uh, obviously, that part held up for me. But what <laughs> what was it in particular um, that you that made you feel that way? So it, I think it was just the repeated phrase of like the broad won't show her tits. Yes. And I was just They're like talking about that a lot. Yeah. And it, it comes from multiple characters where it's like, again, I'm like, there's a way to do that where it's just like the shitty, like slimy producer guy keeps saying the broad won't show her tits or whatever. And you're just like, God, this guy is a monster. But it's like he's saying it. William H. Macy is saying it all the time. Like, it just yeah. feels like everybody, like, that's Every ethos. character, this is just the normal way to talk. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And, and, like, she's portrayed as, like, a, a villain. It is, like, this psycho bitch will charge. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's what's going undercurrent. on? It's, like, so there's a premise of this man is a writer, director, and there's an idea of actors can be really difficult. Actors are kind of crazy. Um, and... That is true. Actors can really be a hindrance to your production. Yes. The two ways in which actors are difficult in this movie is one of them's a pedophile and the other one does not want to be nude on camera. And the pedophile is treated like... He's treated like less of an issue. Yes. He's treated like more mature. Yes. They're um, like, ah, this guy. Which again, it's like that, like... I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. It's like, yeah, like the the male movie star, like his issues are not as big of an issue. Like there's a way to kind of like do all of this stuff in a way that's like, and isn't this fucked up and like have yeah. it be funny in like a dark way. But it truly does feel like he's just like an our Alec Baldwin pedophile guy. Like he's just a real cat. He's a fun guy <laughs> to have a drink with. Like that's how yeah. I feel. It's like this boys club thing. And then it's like. This like women, she's crying in her room because we want her to take all her clothes off on camera. Like, and everyone's got to go like, she's done it before. Yeah. Like there's a weird like consent conversation happening unspoken. So it's like, that is totally crazy. Um, and of course, then the, the, the other, they're like, the other women in the film are Rebecca Pigeon, who is insane uh, and making decisions that are like motivated only by what we need to happen in the plot rather yeah. than like any sort of character that's been formulated. And then, of course, the 
teenage girl portrayed by Julia Stiles who hears that this movie actor likes teenage girls and starts actively like trying to be alone with him and like going out of way, like finding out what he likes, trying to get alone with him and then is covering up the crime for him until she sees that he has also hooked up with Sarah Jessica Parker and then she wants to come forward. I have issues with that as well. <laughs> what? One of them being that the way that she finds out that he has slept with someone else is that Sarah Jessica Parker bursts out of his room with a bunch of people around, like covering up with a blanket and goes, because you treat me like a child. That's why I can't come. Yeah. <laughs> she is having the second half of a conversation in which Alec Baldwin has asked, why can't you come in a way that demands an explanation? <laughs> this is not a question that I ask. <laughs> I always know why. <laughs> this is unrealistic to me. And that she does give an answer and gives it out in the hallway in front of everyone. Yeah. It feels a little convenient to me. <laughs> yeah, it's not exactly artful, I would say. Uh, There's stuff where it's like it kind of wants to be a farce, but it yeah. won't go all the way there. Totally. Like it's really neither fish nor fowl. Like it's it's not stylized enough to be like everything's happening in this super convenient way. It's like some things happen in a convenient way. And then other times we just have like normal seats. Totally. It's so... It's so baffling. I mean, it again, it just like reeks of like, I don't have to listen to anybody. I don't have to take notes on my script at yes, all because yes. it's just like, what's the tone? And like, what are what is this movie even really about? Like, is it about a small town that's taken over by a movie? Is it about a movie taking over a small town? Like it, who's like, what are we even meant to be like taking away from this? Mm -hmm. I guess just that if you treat a woman like a child, she won't come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, well, no, yes, unless she, I guess, is a child, which is another thing. Um, well, we don't know. Oh, God, why am I going down this bit? <laughs> <laughs> we don't know if Julia Stiles came. Yeah. It's true, we don't. I think that, like, okay, so I, I another actor thing that happens that I do like is when they make Philip Seymour Hoffman explain to Sarah Jessica Parker that she's going to lose the monologue that she loved that is why she signed on for the film. And it's like a total production issue. But I do, there's a a real thing. And we've talked, I talked about this a little bit with the Davos where like people pass bad news around, like someone has to be the person to deliver it. And like you see it with like reps and stuff. But like, it is a funny thing that they pin the writer uh, who is like the most powerless person basically with like now explain to her like your idea on why you wanted to change the thing that she likes yeah. and he's left scrambling. And I do think that that's a real um, thing that happens. And I do think I've had instances where you're just sent to run into set and like, it's like you're not allowed to talk to the actors on set for something that like you want them to do. Yeah. But then when it's like, the network needs us to do this clearly inferior version or like we've gotten a note where we like have to get this shit that sucks. Go give them the new line. Yeah. Like now you're, you could talk to the actor because the director doesn't want to do it and yeah. your boss doesn't want to do it. So then it's like, 
go give them, we're going to get an alt on this one. And you know, they're going to hate it. And you have to go and read it to them. And like, I guess like and sell, sell it, it. Yeah. like be like, Hey, we're going to do this <laughs> this time. <laughs> they love what you're doing, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're actually going to do something that I know is worse yeah. and that you know is worse, but I can't sell it out because we have to get you to do it. Um, yeah. So I did think that was like a good sort of um, accurate portrayal that they had. I also just like loved like another very accurate thing for me was like, <laughs> even though it's wrapped up in the the broad won't show her tits storyline where it's just like basically Sarah Jessica Parker's character. There's apparently like a topless scene that is in some ways pivotal to the plot, I guess, because it's like a huge issue that she has decided that she does not want to be topless. Mm -hmm. And she wants like an extra $800,000 in order to do the topless scene. And so they're like, well, we've got to pay it. Like we need her topless. Yep. And then Philip Seymour Hoffman, the writer like goes off and uh, basically like comes up. It's it's a crazy scene. Yes. All the specifics are crazy, but the overall point I found very accurate where it's just like he has this like scene with Rebecca Pigeon where he's talking about like, oh, this is such a big issue that like she won't appear topless. And then they figure out like a thematic and like meaningful way, I guess, for the movie where she doesn't have to be topless. Well, she does have to be topless, but we're shooting oh, right. her from behind. Yes, yes. That's we don't really have to, have to see be it. the fix. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's like, he goes back and he's like, great news. Like you don't have to pay her $800,000. Like I figured it out in a way that makes sense for the movie. And they're like, oh, my God, amazing. Like, thank you. And then all of a sudden, for like a brief moment, like the writer like is important. And I feel like that happens so much where it's just like and also I'm like not to bring it back to the strike, but I'm like, that's why it's important for writers to be on set where it's just like an issue just like comes up and they're like, oh, no, this issue is going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to fix. And then like through some miracle, a writer is able to be like, well, actually, I've thought of a way that like is better that can accomplish yeah. the same thing and save us all that money. Yeah. And they're like, oh, my God, thank you so much. Like, that's incredible. Like, you're such a value here. And then it's like and then also I had like one other thought and they're like, will you shut the fuck up, you yeah. dumb piece of shit and get the <laughs> fuck out of the trailer and go kill yourself. <laughs> like, it's just like you're constantly in this push pull of like, do I matter or do I not? Like, sometimes I'm an integral part of it. And sometimes I truly am just like a person that they're like, shut up and type exactly what we are telling you to type. Yes. Just do, uh, yeah, do the thing that we ask for. Why are you talking? Yeah. Um, and then, yeah. And then there's times where, because uh, I, I always feel like mostly useless on set. Yeah. But it's just this thing where it's like, they don't need you until they do. Yeah. Like, and then there's suddenly a problem. And somebody goes like, do you have anything? And it's like, I do. Yeah, like, totally. This is actually what I do. It's this also is like, the part I do. Yeah. Um, and I've been on like set walkthroughs and all these different things where I'm like, why am I here? But then you do sometimes like they're kind of discussing a problem and not even throwing to you. And it's like, could it be this? Yeah. And you save a lot of money for everyone. Totally. And it's again, it's the same thing of just like everybody making a movie is coming at it with their own like lens and their own skill set where it's just like that's why it's important for people to like be collaborating because you literally it's like the same thing where it's like you could have something in the script where you're like shit like 
we can't get this. But then like the DP can be like, well, what if you shot it this way and Mm -hmm. then you accomplish the same thing? And you're like, oh, my God, you're so right. Or like you're on set and the the way that it's shot, it's just like, oh, shit, we're not going to be able to like see that thing and like have that piece of the conversation. And it's like the writer can be like, oh, well, that piece of the conversation actually is not important or it can happen this way or in this scene later. Like, Mm -hmm. There's just constantly like little well, things. Yeah, that... people aren't focused on stuff. I yeah. mean, I was like, uh, I don't know if I referenced this before, but I, I was on a set where the script was changing a lot and I had an actor go like, so in this scene, I'm about to be very surprised to get information that I have in a prior scene that we have <laughs> already filmed. <laughs> it was like, great. Yes, this actor like is... You tracking know, they're their, tracking yes. what's happening for them yes. uh, <laughs> um, in a way that other people are not. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah, you kind of do need all of those people. And uh, ideally, that was something where like so many different people were working on the script and new pages were coming in all the time. And it was it actually was like getting handled ultimately. But for the most part, like when you have an episode that's your episode, it's like, yes, a lot of people worked on this. I have been with it from the beginning. Yeah. Like I was the main person like taking notes on it and doing the outline and doing the first draft and like doing the rewrites. And so I know why this is this way. Yes. Like, <laughs> and if we need to change it, I know what it changes. Like yes. I know what it's connected totally. to. And so if you don't have that relationship with the material and you're even if you're like a director who's read the script and knows the script and knows who you want how you want to shoot it, there is something of like, oh, we'll switch this. And you're not thinking about like, that switches the two other things. And I know that because I remember it was really tricky to line all of this up. Yes. And that like, it was sort of a a breakthrough when we figured it out. And so if we move one, we need to know that other things move. Like that just doesn't, you know, no one can care as much or have the same familiarity that you do with it. I know yeah. it's so interesting like I <laughs> there have been so many times where like I think that's why the the knee-jerk defensiveness when you get a note of just being like shut up like yeah it's because like there's so many times where you'll get a note that someone just like tosses off and then you're like but if I do that it'll undo all of this and then the person is like oh yeah wow you're right and it's just like people are not they're not thinking about thinking it. of it. Yeah. They're like, reacting to a line and going, exactly. like, I don't love that line. And you go, you don't have to love that line. Yeah. <laughs> but like <laughs> or the information like, that's in it is so important to be in this scene. Yes. Because everything that happens later is based on this person having that information. <laughs> totally. And so like. We can work on the line, but you can't cut it. Yes, exactly. It's <laughs> like, like we can't just lose it. Like, tell yeah. me what is yes, bothering let's you. Figure let's it figure out. this out. Yeah, where it's like, maybe yeah. lose that. I don't like it. It's like, yeah. I, work so I, I hear hard that you don't it. like it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that is a, is a very real thing. But yes, the way they, it's another thing that's weird to me where it is this guy who's super accomplished, who has like made really good stuff, who is making a movie about making a movie and didn't seem to care whether the fake movie held up at all. Like it all feels like placeholders Yeah, where it's like, it's gotta be an old mill or there's gotta be a firehouse. And it just feels like 
he didn't ever try to figure out what the movie really was that they were making. Totally. Just was like, it'll be that it is about purity or it'll be that there is a scene where she needs to be topless and it's important to the story. But And then haha, at the end, it's revealed she's a nun. <laughs> it's yes. just like everything feels very like haha. Well, this, yes, because there's some of the movie that you're watching becoming the movie that he's writing. There's a little bit of it of like, well, it is about second chances or he does need this. They do some of it. But again, just like with the farce element, they don't commit to it. Like they don't have it actually reflect it because anytime you see a specific from the movie that they're shooting, like when you see the scene where she's a nun or when you hear like some of the dialogue, it doesn't feel like it could anyway be connected to the story that you're watching. Totally. Um, seems like it could have been cool to line it up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> or make a choice of like, is this about a like, you know, a very like, you know, theatrical, like dramatic driven screenplay that just then gets like Hollywoodified, mm -hmm. lack of a better term, into just being like this gobbledygook. But it's like, that's not no, what's like happening. he is forced to compromise a lot, but it's just kind of fine that he compromises. Yeah, and he's like, I figured it out, but it never matters. It like, never it, matters. It, it nothing matters. <laughs> nothing matters. Um, I saw that this was like uh, one of the awards that it won was it like uh, tied, almost famous for like best ensemble cast that year, and I do think the cast is very good, but I also was like. Was this the same year as Almost Famous? Because <laughs> this movie feels older to me. Yeah. Like it feels from a previous generation of movies. Not that like, you know, it's that big a difference, but it feels like it's from like 1995. Totally. But it's from the year 2000, where I think of like there being a lot of movies that were taking the care that this <laughs> one maybe didn't. Yeah. Um, there's stuff... That's good. I mean, we have obviously we do a section, we do a segment called Wish I Wrote It. You and you again, you picked the movie because you like it. I feel like we're only trashing it. You like the movie? Well, I I don't think it's terrible. Like I don't think it's but it's like and I always like movies about this subject matter. Totally. It's really just two things in the movie that I like so much. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the movie that I'm like Oh, boy. But the two things are the whole run about, like, the only reason that we're in this town is because they have an old mill. Oh, wait, they don't. Lose the old mill. And the movie is called The Old Mill. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that's so great and so funny. Did you like the PA with the funny T-shirt? This is a real thing that will happen on sets, that there's a <laughs> there's a there's an inside joke that then becomes like oh. all the crew members start like wearing an inside joke. Yes. So they've addressed that, which is a real thing. That is like kind of funny where you'll see like the crewmen are all like wearing like they're yeah. you're like, oh, they care about what we're making, too. Like um, because you don't always interact directly with like every, uh, you know, whatever, like um, assistant on set. She's wearing a shirt that says, does it have to be an old mill, which has become obviously a running joke that you haven't seen among yeah. all the people who work on the movie. But then. William H. Macy goes, take that shirt off right now. And then she turns her back to the camera, I guess in a nod to what will be the solve for this Air Jessica Parker character. And she takes her shirt off and then it's like topless. You don't see it. And then she just walks away without a shirt on. Like other people walk by, no one addresses, like acknowledges it anyway. That was the craziest thing. What's going on? That was insane. I was like, 
you're telling me that this like <laughs> female PA is just braless in a white t-shirt yeah. walking around set and then is told to take it off. It's just like, okay, and just takes it off. It was, again, I'm like, what is the tone of this movie? What is this movie? Why did he make this? Yeah, that was, that was pretty wild for me. It was me. pretty wild. The only, the one other, this is like my like, I'm jealous that I didn't write that. It's like the one other joke in this movie that I just love so much, despite everything else in the movie being so strange, uh, is just when Philip Seymour Hoffman walks into the gym and they have like a pennants hanging up that's like state champions and it's like every single year, but then they skip 1975. Yes, yes. And then it's like, so it's like 1974, blank space, 1976. And uh, there's an old janitor mopping like in the corner and Phil Seymour Hoffman's like, what happened in 1975? And he takes so long to walk all the way across up to Phil Seymour Hoffman, <laughs> is about to tell him and then somebody comes in and he's interrupted and you never you never it. They never find out. Like, it feels so like there's going to be, it's a, that's a really, really funny specific <laughs> That was great. Um, another thing that really made me laugh is it does have a great cast and William H. Macy. So the cast too is like, it's Philip Seymour Hoffman and William H. Macy are in it. Um, John Krasinski shows up. He's, what? Oh yeah. Oh, he's, he's like an extra. It, yeah. He doesn't speak. He's an extra. He does he some like, like stage whispering. Yeah. But like it's um, William H. Macy, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Ricky Jay, famous magician Ricky Jay, are all in it together. Who's Ricky Jay? He's Julia Stiles' father who owns the diner. Oh. Who has too much to do in one scene. <laughs> like he's a great, he's like well used in a lot of movies. It's funny because you go like all these like famous directors are like, they're such fucking dorks. Like in a way that I like, that I appreciate, but it's like they think this famous magician is like cool. Like he does card <laughs> tricks. They're like, let's get the card trick guy like be in the movie. He'll like do card tricks. And it's like they it's like Gus Van Sant uses him. Paul Thomas Anderson uses him. But all three of those characters are um, work on the crew of the pornography films in Boogie Nights. Oh, so like Philip Seymour Hoffman, William H. Macy and Ricky yeah. Jay. They're together in that movie. So that's something I noticed. And William H. Macy has, I think, my favorite line delivery of the movie where Bob Berenger, Alec Baldwin's character, has gotten in a drug driving accident with a teenage girl in the car. They feel like it's all been covered up. They look outside. There's a police officer standing there. And like, and part of the thing is like, there's like a big storm happening through the back half of the movie. He's standing there and he's like in his raincoat and he's got his hat and he's very serious. He's like, is Bob Berenger in there? And William H. Macy like looks, sees, like realizes the cops are going to come question them, like kind of takes a long beat and then goes, it's really raining out there, huh, officer? <laughs> it's like such a great, like, I'm going into like producer mode. Like yeah. I'm going to manage this situation. But it's just like, I don't know. It's such a great um, line. Uh, I have a question for you, which is when Alec Baldwin gets out of the car crash where the car flips upside down and he just has a little cut on his head and gets out, the first line he says is, so that happened. Is this the first instance of So That Happened? Oh, my god! Obviously a comedy stable and maybe in every Marvel movie ever made yes. now. Famously on the Workaholics Did backboard. It, yes. Yes. So That Just Happened. Is this where So That Just Happened originated? Wow. Just food for thought. People, you know, uh, eagerly listeners can like, track it down. This would be a good use for AI. It's like a very good search yes. engine. It's just like, if, yeah. it, if it is, you got to give it up because a lot of that stuff, I do think, I think that uh, 
old school good talk. Craig Kilborn saying good talk. I think that's the first time that ever happened. Yeah. Like the first time it happened, it's pretty good. Yeah. So if if that was a Mammoth original that he gets out of a big crazy car crash and goes, so that happened. <laughs> I give it up. It feels hacky now, but at the time it was good. Oh um, the yeah. wish I wrote it, the line that I was very jealous of is when uh, Sarah Jessica Parker, when they're trying to convince her to stay on the movie when she's going to quit over the topless issue. And and William H. Macy goes, when I first read this, I said, there's only one person who can play this role. And she goes, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. She starts describing the character. And she goes, she works with animals. <laughs> she has a home yeah. <laughs> That's it. That's all you hear. I thought that was so funny. Like the way she that really she's connected so to it. She's so funny in this she's movie. She's so like, funny in it. The oh, parody so of actors. I didn't know if you have any um, stories that you wanted to tell of the ways that actors are. Because like there's a great thing where I thought this was good too. Alec Baldwin is tearing apart the script. When he meets Philip Seymour Hoffman, he goes, can I not go through the usual bullshit where I say what a great job you did and we can actually like fix this fucking thing? Um, and his first line that he's critical of that he wants to change is like, sister, I've just come from a from a fire. And you go, okay, that is like, uh, that does sound like a little bit inhuman, like some of the mammoth lines. Um, and he's like, so we got to lose that. And you're kind of like, okay, this guy's giving notes. And then he goes, and then this next page, page three, it's a nice evening. I wouldn't say that. And it's like, <laughs> and it's like, I think it is a funny like dig at actors of like, yeah. you have a problem with this. Like, we're going to fucking beat this. Like, it's, come on. I, one of, this was like early on, I was on set for something and uh, I generally like, um, you know, I'm like, words matter until they don't. Yeah. Like, there are certainly times where it's just like, oh yeah, please like put this in your own like well, way. yeah, when people are overly respectful, where they're like, where I'm saying, like, dude, could I say, hey, guy? Yeah. It's like, fucking go for it. Totally. Like, yeah, yeah. And uh, so I generally am just sort of like, if an actor is coming to me, I'm usually coming from a place of like, okay, like, I'm sure whatever you're going to say is like, going to be mostly fine. Like, I might just be like, can you actually just do like one little whatever? But there was one time when an actor came to me and was like, I really... There, it was like, I forget what the lead up to, but it was like, it was like some line and then it was like, and then, and then it was just like someone entered the scene and it was like, whatever the person just said was now rendered like completely moot by this mm -hmm. person entering. And the actor came to me and was like, I just feel like it's so like set up -y to just be like, and then, and I was like, okay, yeah, well, it is a setup, but uh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. what's like, uh, what's going bad? Congratulations, you've correctly identified <laughs> yeah. what's, what's <laughs> what happening. the scene is, yeah. Um, and they were like, yeah, I just feel like it's so, like, it's not something I would say, like, could I just say, but so? And I was like, well, actually, but so is the, like, actually the one thing you can't yeah. say. Like, yeah. that is a complete <laughs> reversal. Like, that means that, like, it was then like, like a we're about to reverse of... it with the entrance of the person so yeah. like if you reverse it first yeah not only is it not set up -y, <laughs> yeah. like, it's like undoey i'm like that implies <laughs> that you are you then like made this happen you're like but so this is happening now uh and it was just like it felt so i was like 
in those moments, like I feel so insane because I'm like any outside observer is like this person is literally arguing over and then versus mm-hmm. but so it's like two words like they're so stupid. Yeah. But it's like, no, like that is a complete like, yeah, that actually does matter. Yeah. In this you're moment. Like, we need this, this yeah. word or like something. It can't be the word you're saying. Yeah. Even though it sounds so silly. But then I'm like, if I anytime that I feel like I'm approaching the like David Mamet thing of just like, it has to be hello, not hi. Like, yeah. it's like you feel so like, uh, but sometimes it does matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, can I just hear it? Yeah. Can I hear it, please? <laughs> um, I did have um, an actor that I worked with and the scene would have been basically the equivalent it was them it was a different character figuring something out but it would have been the equivalent of like if you walked into this room and like one of those videotapes on the wall was like a fake like thing where you like pull it and the wall spins around and there's like a secret layer like it was like a sort of hidden entrance and so it was like they're like looking around trying to figure something out and then a different character like finds the sort of like key that like opens the hidden entrance and when we were doing the walkthrough of the seat, this other actor went like, but wouldn't I just walk in and know that that's how it happens? <laughs> They're like, because it's like having seen that yeah. you have to like pull the book on the yeah. bookshelf or whatever. They're like, wouldn't I just know that? <laughs> and it's like, like, I get that no. we're doing this whole thing where like they figure it out, but like, I would just be able to see that. Yeah. And it's like, how do I talk to you? I like, do. <laughs> how, do I, how do I possibly talk to you about this where it's like, boy, <laughs> I hope not. Like, I know you do know now that's how it works. Yeah. With the benefit of having seen the entire <laughs> script. It's, I... They're kind of going, I want it to be me to find it instead. Yeah. But they're also going like, it's like, I think it's weird if you walk into a room and then you just walk straight over to a bookshelf and pull a book and we don't address at all that there's anything else going on. Like, I do think that would be confusing. That would be shocking. I think I think the audience would have a hard time figuring out. I guess they take why. away what you want is like, this guy's really smart. I would go, this guy's done this before. Yeah. Like, this happened This before. guy designed this room, maybe? Yeah. This is, it's, we're in his room. This is his secret room room um so that would need uh another an additional line of explanation um but that was uh yes i that that was something that i i did think about during some of the like baldwin giving notes and like the way that people like will hold upset or whatever for this this idea that keeps coming back around totally um, she works with animals. She has a home. Oh, I wanted to say about this is a positive thing about the Rebecca Pigeon character being insane. Um, because she does like her breaking up with the fiance in one line is so useful for the movie because like, then she goes to the room and you know, she's just broken up with her fiance and then she catches him with Sarah Jessica Parker. Like, and it's like, it's not what it looks like, but then she immediately believes him. Like yeah. he says a line, she just goes like, yeah, I believe you. And we don't know why, but we need her to, because they need to like work together in the next scene. We can't untangle it. And so I think uh on workaholics which we both worked on at different times unfortunately kevin Etten had said like when you write something you should have one character who is like so stupid 
or so insane that they could be used as a device for things like this. Because sometimes you're so in a corner where it's like, how the fuck are we going to get them like to go to like the golf course where yeah. like they have to be at the golf course in the next scene, but there's like no reason for them to be there. And if you have a character who is like really crazy or really stupid and that's been established, you could just have them say like, you know, like, oh, I left my phone on the golf course yesterday. And it's like, you don't need to know anything, anything else. else. Like, it's just like, okay, great. Like this person's nuts. Yeah. So like, then we just can cut there. <laughs> and so I think that is a good piece of writing advice. It's employed here with mixed results. I know. It's like, you've got to really craft a character that like yes. makes that work. It's like, yeah. if there's a unified way in which this character like just has like this, like if there's a logic to the way in which they're illogical, totally. where it's like, they're like obsessed with they're obsessed with bugs and they'll chase a bug anywhere. And it's like, I heard there's good bugs in the golf course. You can get them to go there. Yeah. Like that is a way you can story. use it. And I will write it. And I will write this. <laughs> I mean, I there's like a famous like uh writer's room story about uh friends. I mean, there's several, but like uh there's one where it's like a later season of friends where they were shooting an episode and it was like a crowd scene. Um, so they had a lot of extras there. And a writer came in, uh, like, in between takes and went up to Matt LeBlanc to pitch a joke for Joey. And it was, I forget, I feel like I at one point knew the joke, but, like, they pitched the joke and it's something, like, very stupid because Joey is famously a very dumb character. And they pitched this joke and one of the extras just, like, overheard them pitching the joke and was just like, Joey's dumb. Joey's not that dumb. <laughs> and they were just like... <laughs> and I love like yeah like the line is so important of just like a character can be everything that you need them to be as long as like they are still believable as a human being and yeah. like that's that's the fine line like that's what good writing is mm-hmm. um and I just love that so much because yeah Rebecca Pigeon it's like there's totally a version of that character that is like interesting and funny who just like comes in and is like I 100% believe what you're saying. Like, I have no reason not to believe it. And it's just yeah. like, <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, well, it's taken as just... part of her small towning where it's just like, people are honest. Yeah. You know, like, um, is sort of the the thing there. And she's just like, yeah, why would you? You believe it, so I believe it. Like, yeah. that's sort of her thing. Maybe it is all, at least in, in David Mamet's mind, um, of a piece. But it did feel like she's kind of swinging wild in some spots. But again, like, you know, me watching the movie, I need us to get through the movie. You need them to have that <laughs> so, wonderful solve. <laughs> um, did you have any um, smart thoughts during the movie? Did you have any like big thematic things that occurred to you or anything like oh, that? Big thematic things. I mean, I really was just watching it again from a standpoint of just like, yeah, like this is a turning point of David Mamet's career of just like I can say and do whatever because it is good. Mm-hmm. Everything I do is inherently good. Uh, yes. Because, yeah, there's so much stuff. It's like, yeah, the Sarah Jessica Parker thing of like she loves animals and she has a home. Like it's so funny. That's like, such a funny specific. The janitor thing is so funny. The old mill stuff is so funny. Like there's so much stuff that's so good in it. And it's just like covered by all of these other things that you're like, why did you feel the need to include this? And like, what is actually going on with you? And it feels like, yeah, the beginning of like this, him like bleeding in too much and like, yeah. yeah. So I agree with that. And obviously I've been very critical of some elements of the script and stuff. 
the thing that I did think about in terms of like this guy having a voice and having a tone that is his. And he goes like, when I write something, this is how people fucking talk. And this is the world. And that he's done some things that are incredible. Glengarry Glenn Ross being one of them where it's like, yes, it's stylized, but like, it's all equally stylized. And it is like this writer doing like their sort of idealized version of like language and the value of it and all of that. And that I think there is a, a lazy criticism that gets made of a lot of things, especially now it's more prevalent where people go, it feels written. Yeah. That just feels so written. And that is seen as so negative. Now, this movie, a lot of it feels written. That's not my problem. It's that it feels false. Like it doesn't feel, even in the writing, even giving him the ground of, I know you have your own technique and your own sort of style and the way that you like, like to do your language and punctuation and all of it. But I think we need another pass on some of what has been written here. And I do think that I get defensive against people saying something feels written because yes, some stuff can be so naturalistic and like seem like just uh, it's plucked directly from life. And some people can do that. Sometimes that can be really fucking boring, too, that it's like it's like, you know, whatever, like bad mumblecore or something. Succession feels incredibly written like Aaron Sorkin and Nora Ephron and like Phoebe Waller Bridge and like, you know, I like like Noah Baumbach and Paul Thomas. Like their stuff often feels written. You feel the hand of the writer and you are in the hands of a master who is writing. I want their shit to feel written. I want this writer to make something better than the way people talk in real life. Totally. And so I don't like that criticism. And I think that Mamet sometimes can do stuff. I don't want to say that this movie's bad because it feels written. I think it should feel more written. I think we should have done another pass on yeah. the writer. Yeah. Um, so uh, that was my thought that I had is like, I do like sometimes these writers who and writer directors who have like, They have their tone and you recognize their voice and their style. They have a style that they make people talk in. And I think it gets dismissed. And I think that that language, I don't like that note anymore. I think you could get a better note to go like, this rings false for me. Like, I don't think this person would say this or I don't think they would say it this way. And here's why. But I think we should stop saying things feel written. Totally. I also, I'm like, Aaron Sorkin, I feel like is another example of someone who's just like, he has written so much great stuff and a few so good men. Much. The social network. The social network like, is incredible. A few some good of the best incredible. things I've ever seen. And then the newsroom in Studio 60. Yes. And <laughs> like just totally unchecked. Yeah. He's just allowed to go like your voice is brilliant and you can do whatever you want. And yes. you don't have to take any notes and every you just idea indulge. you have is good. Yeah. And, and it's, like it's repetitive. It's so I'm so interested in like again, like the relationship between a writer and a director, specifically in movies, like in TV, it's kind of its own different thing. But like, it's so interesting and nebulous. And it's sort of it's depends on the two individuals of like, you know, is the director, do they have a writing background or not? Like, does the writer have a directing, you know, ability or not? Like, 
you're sort of like it's a constant kind of you know evolving relationship and I'm like Aaron Sorkin and David Mamet I'm sort of just like they are people who should not be directing their own work and that's not to say that they're like I'm a writer and I want to direct and mm-hmm. uh, I think there are a lot of amazing writers who also make great directors and then when they make the jump to directing like it's really a great step for them and they're able to kind of like still be collaborative and still take in good uh, feedback and like craft something that is still theirs but like you know they're it's a good step for them but I'm mm-hmm. like David Mamet and Aaron Sorkin I just feel like yeah it's like inmates running the asylum where they're just sort of like I'm so in love with my writing my writing is so incredible it's the most beautiful writing in the whole entire world and no one can tell me anything and like yeah. and then you just get these things that are so overindulgent to the point where they're then false and they don't feel like uh yeah anything special yeah yeah i think um uh they they need a collaborator yeah or they just need someone that like that even if they're not going to listen to <laughs> someone that can still just like make the decisions without them <laughs> yeah uh and i think yeah well you work with david fincher yeah uh, on the social network and it's like he's gonna do some editing. He'll make the final say. By the way, I mean, I think that script is largely exactly what it was, but yeah. I think he also probably had input throughout. Totally. You know? um, and that's very hard for me to say because I'm always like, the writer should be more involved, but I feel like sometimes the writer, like, it I, I think has, it, I, don't I know. think it should be a collaboration. Totally. Like, I think it should be a collaboration and people should be open to collaboration. You should be able, you know, you should, unfortunately, even though I don't always want to, have to hear from other people. <laughs> um on aspects of it and so uh i'll say first movie we did was adaptation uh well maybe i didn't say the order in case we want to bury some um anyway uh in rewatching adaptation it maintained the same letter grade for me which is basically a plus and rewatching the tv set um uh it maintained the same letter grade for me uh, although i found different things in both of them um, and that one, I guess, would be like, you know, B plus. And then this one, I thought I would appreciate it on a new level. I hadn't seen it in 20 years. I thought like now that I know all the inside baseball stuff and I did know and recognize more and like that part of it. But it maintained the same thing that I felt when I watched it 20 years ago, which I was like. A little bit of a missed opportunity here. Yeah. Um, uh, the cast is great. Um uh, and there's stuff that is good. There's stuff that is funny. Um, but yes, for all the reasons we've said, I think um, I think we should try again. <laughs> I think we should try again to make State in Maine. I would love to remake State in Maine. And maybe you can direct it, Jed. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Subtitles On. Uh, check us out on Facebook. No, I, we don't have Facebook. <laughs> <laughs>